Welcome to our Bible study. This is designated as our Wednesday evening Bible study, but whatever day that you may be watching this, this is for May 6th. We are in the Gospel of Luke, chapters 21 through 24. We picked out some select verses from each of those chapters to study, uh, things that are not necessarily covered in our daily Bible studies, uh, Bible reading, pardon me, in devotionals or during the sermon, but things that may are still nonetheless of particular interest. Before we get into our Bible study tonight, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for a day that you have brought to us. We pray that our hearts are filled with joy, with the opportunity to be able to read and study a portion of your word. We might have a closer walk with you. We're mindful of the situation that is going on in our world today, not only for locally here in our town, but throughout our state, our nation, yes, and continents around the globe. We pray, Father, that leaders of nations will look to you for guidance and wisdom and plead their case before you, the God of all mercy. We pray, Father, for those who are ministering to those who are ill, that you will give them strength, that they will look to you for their strength. And for those who are ill, that if it be your will, they might be brought back to a good measure of health. In all things, may we keep you in the forefront in our lives. We may depend upon you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, as you're turning to that. A couple of things we want to mention. As this is May 6th, we are anticipating that in the near future that the restrictions will be lifted for the isolation that has been called on by our government. And we are trying as best we can to adhere to those things and being in subjection to the government, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13. Also keeping in mind that there are the needs of the congregation, and to that end, when this restriction ends, we are putting together information uh, that we will pass on at the, at the time when we can make those decisions based on further information that we will get, so that when we come back together, we are keeping in mind the safety of all people, we realize that there are going to have to be sacrifices that are going to be made. There are some who will not be able to make it back uh, in our midst for perhaps a little more extended period of time uh, due to their own illness, and we are keeping that in mind as well. So we are trying to reach out and make those decisions. We'll be calling on many uh, for their expertise in this. Our wisdom is not going to reside within ourselves. We are praying uh, for wisdom from God above but also reaching out to those people who have expertise in these areas so that when we gather get back together, people are safe uh, for this. Uh, we do not know exactly when that time is going to be, but we are keeping in mind all this put together. So, in our, uh, in our reading today, we're in the Gospel of Luke, as I mentioned, chapter 21. Uh, Jesus, the situation that we find ourselves here is very much what uh, what we find in Matthew chapter 24 is perhaps Matthew 24 stands preeminent above as he describes this situation that uh, again as Luke records for us in chapter 21 uh, as Jesus is coming out of the temple and the, the uh, disciples call the attention to it in verse 5 while 
of Luke chapter 21. It says, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned in some noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and we have the advantage now of looking back in history uh, and knowing what happened to Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when the Roman ar armies under Titus, who had laid siege to Jerusalem for, uh, for a period of, uh, I believe, about two years, around about that, uh, laid siege to it, and when the breach was made, a complete and total destruction was made. Jesus is looking forward on this and telling them that as beautiful as you think all of this is, it is going to be completely laid waste. And it is, it is difficult sometimes for people to understand what Jesus talks about. And, and in Matthew chapter 25, as I turn back there for just a moment, uh, it gives us a clear picture of, of what is being asked here. Uh, pardon me, I, I said Matthew 25, it is actually uh, Matthew 24. And it says, Jesus left the temple was going away. This is in verse 1 of Matthew 24. When His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another. It will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so the... The question that is asked, and it's the same context of what is being talked about in Luke 21, is the disciples thinking, and we can gain this from, from uh, how they ask the question, they believe that when Jesus speaks of this, that He's talking about one single event, the destruction of Jerusalem, and in fact going to be um, uh, the end of the world for them. And, and perhaps in their mind it was. But they're actually asking, as Jesus points out, you're talking about two different events. And verse 4 of Matthew chapter 24 says, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead you astray. You hear wars, wars and rumors of war. So he continues on talking about, and as he comes down from verse 4 in Matthew chapter 24 down to verse 35, he is going to be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he's going to answer what they believe is part of the first question, but it's actually the second part of the question. He's going to talk about his second coming, which is going to be many, many years and obviously uh, still in the future for us. We do not know. And Christ clearly points out not even he knows this at this point. So when you hear people that are saying, oh, I see the signs, Jesus clearly says in Matthew 24, there are no signs. There are no signs when you're going to know that I am coming again. So when people say, you see, the things that are happening in our world are actually signs of the end of time. Be very, very careful on this because Jesus says that just as in the time of Noah, uh, people were marrying and giving in marriage, they're doing all these things, were unaware. It will be the same when Jesus returns in the second coming. There will be no signs that His coming uh, again. And, and He tells about wars and rumors of wars as it pertains to the destruction of Jerusalem. So as uh, Matthew 24 and Luke 21 can be laid side by side, and we can glean a, 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 a a fairly good idea of what is being talked about here, but there are two things that are talked about. So when, when people are talking about 
that there are going to be wars and rumors of war. That's the sign of Jesus' second coming. They mistake that because Jesus is, in those verses from chapter 24 of Matthew, uh, from verse 4 down to 35, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, when you see those armies surrounding Jerusalem, uh, know that the time is near for that. And the warning that he gave uh, was such that those who were Christians would be able to flee to the mountains, and they did. I mentioned this in our class that we have locally, that history records that not one Christian was killed during the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, although estimates I've heard from hundreds of thousands up to over a million Jews were killed in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. But because of the warning that Jesus gives them here, He says, this generation will not pass away until you see this. The generation is talking about those people that were alive. And that generation, generally speaking, is about 40, 30 to 40 years. So, And that is right in keeping with what Jesus talks about around A.D. 30 to A.D. 70 is 40 years. That generation, or these, there would be people alive that would still see this and the warning that they gave. So it, it is an interesting uh, study, and it can be a rather exhausting study as we look at uh, those things uh, that are spoken of uh, of end time uh, prophecies uh, that many people misconstrue for those things which pertain uh, to the uh, to the church. So as as he comes down, the most important thing to keep in mind is we we will not know when that's. Uh, his second coming is. Herald camping notwithstanding, uh, all of these end time uh, naysayers that, that say they, they know when even the Son of Man at that time did not know when the second coming was. So we do not know. The most important thing is in verse uh, 34 of Luke 21, he says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So the, the most important thing to keep in mind is, uh, number one, knowing that there is going to be uh, a day of judgment that is going to come eventually, but that because he tarries long, and using a, a rather antiquated uh, uh, term here, tarries long, though it's going to be a long time that we should still be vigilant and the parables that Jesus tells, uh, continuing on in Matthew chapter 25, uh, the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, uh, the division of the sheep and the goats, all pertain to that being ready and being and doing the Lord's work uh, is the important part. As we continue on into uh, Luke chapter 22, uh, we're going to drop down to verse 35. Many things that, uh, that are contained within Luke chapter 22 we've, we've covered either in sermon or in the, in the uh, daily devotionals. But there is a, a rather peculiar uh, part that beginning in verse 35 of Luke chapter 22. Uh, we find that Jesus makes some rather unusual statements to the disciples. So beginning in verse 35, Jesus uh, and begins, and he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. Uh, as in, No, we lack nothing. Uh, he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. 
For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. This is not going to be a rant on Second Amendment rights. And if, and if you are not in this country, perhaps you may not understand when we talk about Second Amendment. Uh, but many people have hitched their wagon, so to speak, to this verse saying that uh, this gives us the right for, uh, to, uh, to carry guns. I'm not going to get into that. But what, uh, what is more important about these four verses uh, is that Jesus is telling them that when He sent out the twelve and He sent out the seventy-two, that He told them, uh, you should not take things that are going to weigh you down. You're not going to take things, uh, but your dependence is going to be upon God. Uh, he's, and he says, did you lack anything? They said, no, we didn't, in a sense, no, we didn't, we lacked nothing. We had everything that we needed. He says, uh, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Now times are different. From now on, uh, everything is going to change here for you. Uh, when he says, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And this has caused considerable uh, tensions and, and, and arguments uh, among brethren uh, those who are on the side of, yes, we should be able to uh, be able to protect ourselves, uh, um, uh, self-protection, uh, and those who are perhaps more leaning towards the pacifists who say, no, we have no, uh, we have no authorization to, to take others' lives. Uh, but what Jesus is saying is that, is that times are going to change now. Uh, and he tells them that... Uh, uh, when they said in verse 38, it says, Look, Lord, here are two swords. Now, when you consider that uh, an armed militia is going to come after Jesus in the garden, what are two swords going to be against this? But he's talking mainly of self-protection, uh, being able to protect, your, uh, protect yourself uh, in this sense. Uh, so, uh, lest we get too far carried away in saying, Yes, this shows that, that we should be able to carry guns and take other people's lives, I, I'm not going to get into that, nor am I going to lean more towards the, the side that says, no, we have no right to carry guns and be pacifists. Somewhere in the middle of that, there is, uh, is, is the meaningful part that's here. But the most important thing that we glean from this is Jesus is saying that, that times are going to be very perilous for them from now on, and especially in this night to where the culmination of history, of everything since before the foundations of the world, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 and Titus 1 and 2, that talks about from the foundation of the world. So we look at those, those events that, that this very moment in history is that which uh, the, the entire uh, world, the history of the world has looked forward to, to the crucifixion and giving of the Son of God for uh, man's sins. And now, going forward, we look back to that one point in history uh, to where Jesus says, this, this very night, this is, uh, this is a time. And from, there, from then on, uh, as we shall see, uh, continuing on, uh, they would be persecuted for their, uh, for their faith. Uh, to say that uh, we are completely set apart from, from government, uh, we go into the uh, book of Acts and we find that twice Paul uses the, uh, the, Roman, the terms of the Roman government to actually save himself, uh, claiming that he is a, a Roman citizen, which he was, 
and his appeal to Caesar, using the law to his advantage. So we find that it is perfectly in keeping to use the laws of the land uh, to protect uh, oneself. Uh, so that's what I wanted to say about uh, Luke chapter uh, 22. The, uh, much that is contained in the, the arrest and Peter's denial are, are fascinating accounts in this as, and also when, when Judas betrays the Son of Man, uh, his, uh, his master for this, uh, we come down the uh, very much contained in, in Luke chapter 22. Now as we move ahead to Luke chapter 23, and I know we're going through this at a seemingly a breakneck speed at times. In, in Luke chapter uh, 23, we're going to look at uh, verse 26 to 33. We find that, that Pilate, we, we looked at this in some of our devotionals in our classes in the past, that, that Jesus went through six trials. Uh, three of those were at the hands of the Jews uh, through Caiaphas, Annas, uh, and also the, the, uh, the Jewish council. Those three from the Jewish side. And then we also find that there were three trials, one the first by Pilate, then by Herod when, uh, when Pilate finds out that Jesus is a Galilean. Uh, that's really not his jurisdiction in a sense. That, uh, it, it always seemed to me that Pilate was glad to have gotten rid of this uh, in a modern term, we might call it this hornet's nest. Uh, yeah, I'm going I'm to send him over to Herod. Uh, Herod, who always wanted to see something, uh, a, a miracle performed by, by Jesus, uh, but he finds none. Herod dresses him in purple and sends him back, uh, and Pilate uh, makes the, the statement to the Jews, I find no guilt in this man. I, for these things that you have accused him, I don't find any guilt in this. Uh, but finally, uh, he is overcome by the desires of the Jews to have him crucified. He turns it over, so that's really the sixth trial. And some people have said the, that there is actually a, a seventh trial, and I'll leave this up for you to decide. It's neither here nor there, but the seventh trial that Jesus would have, been, would have gone through, undergone, was when Pilate uh, talks to the crowd and they... Uh, he says, I find no guilt in him, and he washes his hands, and they cry out, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. So in a sense, uh, really the, the trial of public opinion of those people out in the crowd who said, uh, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar, uh, really might be considered as a seventh, and as I said, it's neither here nor there that we consider that as one of, one of the six or one of the seven. Uh, but it is just food for thought in this that at every uh, at every level, Christ was, uh, even though he was innocent, completely innocent, uh, was uh, condemned in this, <clears throat> and again using a, uh, uh, a modern day term uh, that, that may not be recognizable to some who might be listening to this, but we might call this a kangaroo court, which is it's really um, uh, false uh, allegations are brought against him. Uh, which cannot be proven, and we find this in, in the Gospels. Each of the Gospels says that they could not prove any of this against uh, Jesus, but yet he was uh, found guilty, and that was as it should be that uh, history was going to show if you go all the way back to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, it, it tells about how he was rejected uh, by men. And so Jesus has been found guilty. Pilate is sending him uh, outside the city 
to, and he has dragged his cross. And there is a, uh, as I understand, I've never been to Jerusalem, but as I understand, they talk about the, uh, the stages of the cross as they uh, come up the Via Della Rosa, uh, as they lead him from where the trials went in, uh, in Pilate's uh, place of residence where he, uh, the trials went, and then they lead him through the town and out, outside the city. As Hebrews tells us, he was crucified outside the city uh, to the place of the skull. And in verse 26, it begins, and it's telling about this, uh, this trip. And so beginning there, in verse 26 of Luke chapter 23, it tells us, And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there following him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But Jesus, uh, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Uh, such a... It's a sad situation for sure, but so much information that is, uh, in, is contained in here. And as we look at, uh, beginning in verse 23, uh, scroll, uh, pardon me, verse 26, it says, As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. And this Simon of Cyrene has been depicted in, in movies. Uh, somebody who was from Cyrene. Cyrene was a... Uh, a place in on the north coast of Africa, um, and who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind, and uh, so the place that he was coming from, uh, Cyrene. We, if you if you follow, I, I often call them and it's just my own way of uh, relating these things. I call them little breadcrumbs. So there are there are places things that we can know about this. Uh, Mark chapter fifteen twenty one gives us just a little bit more information that opens a door uh, here. Uh, is telling about the same situation. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And so here we have just a little bit of door of information that is open for us. If we go to Romans 16 and verse 13, we may find this same Rufus. And we're not for sure because it doesn't give us any further information. Uh, Paul, in his this great chapter on uh, those people, not only from Rome, but those people who were with Paul where he was writing from. He's, in verse 13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So if this is the same Rufus, Rufus would have been, a, at this point when Paul writes in Romans, a resident of Rome. But Rufus being perhaps a common name, this may or may not be him. Uh, and as we look at what a little bit about uh, uh, Cyrene, in Acts chapter 2, as Luke is recording uh, all of these people, which is a fulfillment, if you go back to the, uh, the prophecy of, of Isaiah, Isaiah said that uh, people from around the world are going to be coming. And he names many of these, most of these that are here. In Acts chapter 2 it says, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. So another little breadcrumb, breadcrumb for information. And if we forward into the book of Acts, uh, chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, we find that the naming of the seven, because the Greek widows were being overlooked, 
uh, we get a little bit more information about uh, uh, Cyrene. Uh, in verse 8 it says, And Stephen, and num they're numbering the seven that are named, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed uh, with, Seaman, uh, with Stephen. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I mentioned this as part of the seven, but C Stephen was one of the seven. But here we have uh, people that were named uh, that rose up against uh, Stephen here and says, of the Cyrenians. So here we have another reference. So if you, uh, if you have either a dictionary or a concordance, you can follow these and get a little bit more information. So when it, so when it mentions here in Luke chapter 23, you might say, well, you might pass over it and, and miss some of this information. Uh, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene, as I mentioned, was part of Africa. And so Simon perhaps was a dark-skinned, an African, um, as we might call them today, a black person uh, who was uh, called on to carry, uh, help carry the cross with Christ. And such an honor. You think, why would, why would Luke take the time to mention who this was? He could very easily have said that someone from the crowd was called in to carry the cross. There's a significance that perhaps is unknown to us, but in further reading from the Romans chapter 16 uh, and connecting that with Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, gives us a little bit more of insight of sometimes why a writer will include things into this. And, and as I mentioned before, my fascination with the genealogies uh, of this, that we're able to connect things that we may sometimes pass over as insignificant, but there's a great deal uh, that lies therein that we can glean from it. And continuing on in Luke chapter 23 and verse 27, uh, we find that, uh, and there following him a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting him. And Jesus turns around and the, the phrase that Jesus uses, uh, turning to them says, daughters of Jerusalem. And this is a term that uh, if we go back to the Old Testament, we could go to the Song of Solomon, and it's a term that would have been used, uh, daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, so he's making reference to those women who lived in Jerusalem who were Jews, and uh, a term of uh, identification and perhaps even a, a term of endearment. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Uh, and it's, it is interesting that at, at certain times, in this process of the, of the crucifixion, that Jesus turns the attention away from Himself when we think of uh, uh, sometimes putting ourselves in that position and wondering, what would I do in this situation? Uh, sometimes the human aspect of it that says, it's going to be all, I, I am in abject pain. All I can think about is myself. But notice that Jesus thinks about others. Uh, we come to Him being on the cross, and He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At a time to where He is in excruciating pain, He takes the time to ask the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, and also, as, a, as one of the thieves that was next to Him on the cross, He takes the time to tell Him, uh, Today you will be with Me uh, in paradise. At a time when He's on the cross in excruciating pain, he takes the time to think of his mother who is out in the crowd, and he mentions to John, uh, Behold your mother, woman, behold your son, making sure that his mother was taken care of. Uh, so an extraordinary uh, 
ability to be able to think beyond himself in spite of what he is going through. Uh, so he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, verse 28 of Luke 23, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. Talking about a time to where it would be better if people had not been born because of what is going to happen. And it, uh, in all likelihood, he is making reference to this time in Jerusalem's history where the destruction is going to come about. He says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves because the time is coming, as we described earlier in chapter 21, when not one stone is going to be left on another. And historians report of the massive casualties, the deaths that are going to occur in this. Um, and, and they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us up. A, 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 a term that's been used, he borrows uh, imagery from the Old Testament. We talk about the mountains fall. You know, just, we want all this to end. Just, we would hope that the mountains would fall on us and cover us up, that this would end this, this tragedy. And in verse 31, he makes an interesting uh, statement. He says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? If Jerusalem does this to me, who is innocent, in times to where uh, the gospel of the, of the kingdom was being preached, in a time to where blessings were there, if they do that in this time, uh, in favorable times, what is going to happen uh, when things get very bad? This happens to the innocent saver. What will happen when lifeless Israel falls to Rome in that time, when the, when the wood is dry. As we continue on down to uh, verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. So on this, this day, three individuals were going to be crucified. And this would not have been uncommon that uh, there was a time when, uh, when several would have been crucified. I'm sure there were days when only one person was crucified or no one at all. But in this particular instance, uh, there were two others that were going to be crucified with him. Uh, and really, we look at this as a fulfillment of what, um, uh, what Isaiah talked about. Um, he would be counted uh, with that. Uh, two others of criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, uh, I just want to say something about a, a class that, uh, that I was in just recently uh, that Tim Tate taught here. Absolutely wonderful class that Tim taught. It was magnificent. Uh, my class doesn't hold a candle to that. Tim did such a great job. And one of the things that, that Tim pointed out, because he had the experience, is that he had visited Jerusalem. And as they went out to the place that uh, appeared to be where Jesus was crucified, it's easy to, to understand why they called it the place of the skull, because the rock escarpment there uh, that has survived through the centuries still looked exactly like what a, you would think that a skull looked like. Uh, I just wanted to say that. So when it describes this, the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And as I mentioned before, this is where Jesus says, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't realize what they are doing uh, in this case. And in a fulfillment, uh, they cast lots to divide his garments, a fulfillment from the, uh, from the Psalms. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. 
And the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. All of this information uh, that is there, uh, uh, that is brought out more fully if you, if you lay this side by side with the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. It just gives you, a, uh, as, as it were, a three-dimensional picture of what is going on here. So it's good to read the synoptic Gospels. Uh, synoptic meaning seen together. Uh, to read them all, as well as the Gospel of John, that inscription. And uh, verse 39, making reference back to, as we talked about, the, he was crucified between two thieves. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Such an extraordinary uh, statement of faith. Jesus, remember me. He understands who this is that's being crucified. In, in some sense, we don't get the full idea of how much he knows, but he knows enough that this man is innocent. He should not have been crucified. Uh, as he tells the thief that's on the other side, he looks either to his left past Jesus or his right past Jesus, we're not told. Uh, but uh, when he, uh, he chastised, rebukes the other one. He says, we're getting what we deserve uh, in our crucifixion. He understands. He, he admits his own guilt in this. But this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus, remember we when you come into your kingdom. And verse 43, and he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Last week as we looked at chapter 16, uh, we looked at Lazarus and the rich man. And this term that is used here in verse 43, today you'll be with me in paradise, he's not talking about heaven because Jesus does not go to heaven until Luke records this uh, 40 days after his resurrection uh, because it says then he ascended into heaven. Uh, if we go back to uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 20, he, tells, he clearly tells um, Mary Magdalene, I have not ascended to my Father yet. So he has not gone to heaven. This paradise that he's speaking of as we looked at, is that place of, uh, uh, of enjoyment, uh, but the judgment has not taken place. And Abraham, as Jesus tells in the parable, says to the rich man, there's a gulf that is fixed between us. So that Hadean realm, that realm of the dead, is this paradise that's being talked about. Uh, but there has not been that, uh, that ascension up into eternal uh, heaven. That's a, a great study and a fabulous study by itself. But this paradise that Jesus speaks of, you'll be with me in that Hadean realm even today. So he's speaking in, in very realistic terms. Uh, as we continue on to uh, winding up into uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, we find in, beginning in verse 13 the two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus. And it tells us that one of these is, is Cleopas. Uh, and as Jesus has this conversation, and however it occurs that, that his identity is being hidden from them, it's true. They don't recognize him for, what, for who he is. Uh, and they tell him uh, the story of what has happened. Are you the only one that doesn't realize what, is, what has gone on here? And uh, as they come down uh, to, the, to the part to where Jesus is going to, uh, they're going to realize who he is, uh, 
And as they finish up their story, their account of what has happened in verse 24 of Luke 24, it says, uh, And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And now Jesus is going to, to open this up to them. He says in verse 25, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? So Jesus uh, makes them realize this is nothing that, that really has been hidden from them. Jesus all along was trying to tell His disciples of the things were going to happen. Uh, we go back to Matthew chapter 16 as He tells the disciples and Peter chastised them, so, said, Lord, this will never happen to you. But Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're only thinking about the things of this world. You're not thinking of eternal uh, uh, issues. Uh, o foolish one, slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And we go back of the hundreds, literally hundreds of, of prophecies from, uh, as Jesus is going to relate to here, Moses and all the prophets. As he comes, uh, as we're going to look at in a few moments, he says not only Moses and the prophets, but the Psalms as well, all testify to this moment in history where they had made these prophecies of what was going to happen. You're slow to believe this. I, I'm telling you this all the time. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? If man is ever going to be redeemed, that sacrifice for sin had to be made. It was necessary. And in verse 27 of Luke 24 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And wouldn't that have been a marvelous place to have sat? I often use a statement, I would like to have been a fly on the wall there just to listen. I would have liked to have sat at their feet as Jesus explains all of this. And so there's, there's something to be said, and sometimes we... Uh, you may hear from people that we spend a little bit too much time in the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament are those things which really were, uh, had concealed, they were concealed, but they were meant to reveal what was going to be the future glory of the Son of Man who was coming down to earth. Uh, so in all those things and the, the massive amounts of, of Scripture from the Old Testament, they were all pointing ahead. As I said, the, the, the Old Testament was pointing ahead to the Savior that was going to come. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John says the Savior is here. And from the uh, book of Acts on, they're talking about the Savior's coming back. And so they, we put that in three uh, broad stroke, and generally speaking. Uh, so uh, as they continue down to, uh, he, he interprets all these things in Scriptures. I, 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 don't, I don't have an idea of how long it would have taken, but since Jesus really called the Word, as we find in John chapter 1, He was the Word uh, before He was the, uh, the Son of God. He was the Word from eternity. Uh, he is the one that's Word came from. So He would have known everything that was pertinent. So however long it takes to, to tell them about all these scriptures. Uh, beginning in verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if you're going further, but they urged Him strongly, saying, Stay with us, uh, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. We have a gospel song that says... Uh, um, uh, stay with us for now that is far spent. Uh, went in to stay with them. Uh, so now we come down, we go past there, and we come down to verse uh, 25, uh, or pardon me, verse 45. Uh, 
Uh, he says, and he opened your mind to understand the scriptures. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Uh, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Uh, such an interesting uh uh, statement that he makes because he says clearly that he is flesh and blood. He has been resurrected from the dead and they're able to reach out and touch him. This should, uh, shouldn't should be in conflict of, of what Jesus tells Mary Magdalene in uh, in John chapter 20 when he, when he says, don't touch me for I have not ascended to my, uh, to my father. But uh, the term is really cling to me. You know, I, you don't have to worry about clinging to me in a sense because I'm going to be here for many days. This is the last you're going to see to me. As many uh, scholars and commentators have, uh, have thought that's is what he's meant by that. But Jesus wants them truly to understand. And we, we find that uh, uh, in the other Gospels where it talks about Thomas was uh, the doubter. He doubted. He says, unless, <laughs> unless I can touch it, I am not going to believe. Um, see my hands on my feet, I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Jesus is flesh and bones here and going to test it because Jesus eats of food there. Uh, it is interesting that in Philippians chapter 2 and verses uh, 5 through 8, he's, as Paul is trying to express the type of attitude that people should have that in being like Christ, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, that even though he was God, he was going to give up uh, what he had in order to make that sacrifice for it. Uh, uh, someone once called that his divine prerogative. Uh, in all its mystery of what those two words is, divine prerogative. He is going to give up his place in heaven to come down. He says, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He became human, became flesh and blood. And this is the argument that we find uh, sort of veiled in the uh, John's uh, first letter uh, is he talks about that people are going to deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He calls that the, the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, that, that there are some who would say there's no way that God could become flesh because flesh is all evil. And that was really one of the, uh, the foundational beliefs of the Gnostics. And it's, and it's uh, among others, but in the first century the Gnostics were beginning to say, they're going to say, well, Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. But John clearly says that's the, that's the teaching of the Antichrist uh, there. So Jesus did come down in the flesh. And he says, uh, you know, spirit does not have flesh and bones. So Jesus was in the, in the flesh. Another interesting uh, verse is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, uh, where Paul tells Timothy, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. And that man is Anthropos, the man, Jesus Christ. So Speaking in present tense, he still considers Jesus to be man. Is it possible that Jesus still has that flesh and blood, a flesh and blood that is not like our flesh and blood, but a flesh and blood that is eternal, that he gave up what, what Paul describes here in Philippians um, 
He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And that still remains today that, uh, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified uh, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, talking about those who are the saints. And continuing on further into Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, therefore he had to be made in the light be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made in flesh and therefore susceptible to temptation which he overcame and did not sin for it tells us that he, he knew no sin. Uh, and so returning back to Luke chapter 24 and verse 40 and, and when he had showed him his hands when he had said this he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy, were marveling and said, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And verse 44, uh, like to come, uh, come down to the end of our class here. Uh, verse 44 says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written. I think those are, are uh, such important words in whatever translation you, uh, you have. And, and sometimes uh, in the Old Testament it says, uh, thus says the Lord. I think those are beautiful words to consider in all of their glory. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. Last week we made, notice, made note of this uh, in the rich man who was uh, in torment. And, Ab and when the rich man says, send Lazarus back to my five brothers, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. He says, no, no, no. If they see someone come back from the dead, they will believe. He says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe if someone comes back from the dead. In that is the power of the Word of God. Where he says, if they don't believe what Moses and the prophets wrote, for think of how powerful that, that the law was and Moses and the prophets. Now think of how much more powerful we have in the New Testament. For as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, that which would cut both ways. It is so sharp it can divide bone and marrow. That's how sharp. I'm not a, uh, a butcher. Uh, someone who cuts a meat cutter, but if I asked them, tell me how sharp a knife would have to be in order to cut bone and marrow, he'd say, unbelievably sharp. He says, that's how sharp the Word of God is. The, the Word of God is so sharp that it can divide the heart. It can go in there and work on even the most hardened heart if that person is willing. And he says, uh, the Christ, and he says, thus is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Uh, interesting to note this on the third day and they had discussions with people about well Jesus was supposed to have been in the tomb for three days and three nights but more times it says in scriptures that he would rise on the third day Friday Saturday Sunday he would rise on the third day that's how the Jews counted time they counted time whatever part of Friday uh, you counted as the whole so Friday Saturday he rose on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Your witness of these things, and behold, I'm sending 
the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that is making reference to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit should come down, uh, clothed with power from on high. So as we close this, we look at the power of the written word. Thus it is written. All of these things from the, that culminated from the, uh, before the foundation of the world, but especially those things that have been written in the word of God. We may wonder from, from time to time why the word of God is not a larger document. It could be volumes and volumes to answer all those myriads of questions that we have of, of why is this and why is that and what is this and where. But as John writes, these things are written so that you may believe. And there is enough contained in the word of God written, especially in the New Testament to which we are, uh, under this day. There is enough written there to give us faith and give us everything we need to know as pertaining to life and godliness and the salvation of our souls in this age and in the age to come. I hope you've enjoyed the class uh, and I pray that uh, if you have any questions that you will contact us. Uh, you may contact us uh, whether it's by the venue of the uh, Facebook through Messenger uh, any of the comments there, or if you're viewing this on our website, if you'll just write us um, a correspondence, and we'd be glad to answer any questions if we're able to. Uh, we don't claim to know it all, but we claim to know who knows it all, and that is God in His Word. Before we go, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, what a joy it has been to spend this uh, brief period of time in studying Your Word. We pray, Father, that hearts and minds are open to it, that we might learn those things will cause us to have a closer walk with you. We thank you again for this time. We pray that all things will be done according to your will, and that our hearts will turn to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.